Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. I suspect a lot of us can trace some of our skin vibrating music back to that time when everything was bigger, brighter, louder, and maybe a bit more ridiculous. Yes, that's right, the 80s. The 80s were a time that came shortly after the period when people realized just how much money could be made by incorporating bombast and grandiose imagery with music. In particular, Kiss really cleaned up a few years before the 70s officially ended with all of their marketing bluster in selling all sorts of products bearing the Kiss image and record companies started rubbing their hands together at the prospect of musical commerce like they'd never seen before going into the 80s. And so music in the 1980s was more focused on artist image hence the introduction and subsequent popularity of MTV. Now, music had an accompanying visual aspect to create and shape and perpetuate an artist's image. And in line with this pursuit, the music itself was also aggrandized. Everything was overstated and drenched in reverb. And society's focus on economics and money and affluence came to be a popular narrative in 80s music. As the music industry thrived and expanded in tandem with MTV, with an intensified focus on image and making money, the number of artists proliferated. But the relationships they had with their record labels would now begin to change in a very important way. If you ever wonder why the 80s was the decade of one-hit wonders, where an artist could attain massive successes with just one or two incredibly popular songs and then just fade into the ether forever, This is why. Record companies figured out that they no longer had to sign artists to development deals they did back before the 80s, deals that would require them to invest time and money into artists in the hopes of developing a mediocre talent into a career star. That whole model completely changed. Even before the internet, the world was getting smaller. Globalization was becoming more pronounced. Talent pools were increasing in size, and it became clear that more money could now be made by eliminating those old extended artist development deals in favor of establishing quick one or two hit artists. The world was moving faster now. New technologies were emerging, and as fads and trends changed more rapidly, fans' appetites grew, and in tandem, their attention spans waned. And in the 80s, One-hit wonders abound. We all know them. Wall of Voodoo's Mexican Radio. Tony Basil's Mickey. Nana's 99 Luftballoons. And Dexy's Midnight Runner's Come On Eileen. Pump up the volume from Mars. I could go on and on and on. Now, this new model of commerce-driven music making gave rise to something that I've talked about a couple times over the history of the No Sleep Till Sudbury podcast. A lot of artists just couldn't continually adapt or keep up to fast-removing trends in the 80s. But we also had a number of artists who had established themselves in the 80s that were seeing this take shape and going into the new decade thinking, what the hell am I going to do now? There were a lot of those artists who had made names for themselves under the old regime in the 70s now competing with newer, younger, 80s stars for the Year of the Music fan. Cheap Trick, Alice Cooper, Diana Ross, Hart, 
Kiss, The Rolling Stones, Aerosmith, Bowie, Van Halen, Cher, ACDC, Lionel Richie Sticks, there are loads of them. And it's actually fascinating to track each of their careers individually to see how they changed to adapt to the 80s. Some succeeded, some failed. Unfortunately, we don't have time to do that here, but let's definitely have a look at one or two of these artists just to get an idea. I think most of us can name the artists who failed to make that transition into the 80s, so there's not really any need to get into that. But what makes this an interesting topic is that there are two considerations, really. One much easier than the other. The objective measure and the subjective measure. Objectively, if a band retained their popularity by selling records and extending their career into the 80s, they can be technically considered successful. But subjectively, was the music they created to do that any good in terms of artistic and authentic quality? Heart, for example, was a popular band in the 70s that was arguably more successful in the 80s after shedding their folky acoustic sound for a more glammed up image in the late 1980s. Now, I think the songs from both eras were technically good, well-written quality songs, but subjectively, it's really an individual call. My preference for heart music was stuff like Baby Lestrange written and recorded in the 70s, but technically released in February 1980. I prefer their 70s stuff, but that's subjective. Aerosmith is a similar but more clear-cut case. They really had two careers, a 70s career and an 80s career, with successes in both. But in my opinion, their 70s stuff blows away the material that came out of the Aerosmith camp in the 80s from an organic, artistic standpoint. It's richer, more real material. Tina Turner adapted particularly well to the 80s as a 70s artist. In fact, the 80s may have saved her career, actually. She updated her look for the latest trends, but still had an identity that was completely her own. And she made memorable videos, adapted her soul style to suit modern pop. She also did what a couple of other artists of her ilk did wisely. She collaborated with popular new artists to maintain relevance. Turner worked with 80s superstar Brian Adams, Paul McCartney wrote with Michael Jackson, and Mick Jagger worked with someone who achieved popularity in the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s, David Bowie, who both, incidentally, shared the stage with Tina Turner in the 80s. You know, the fact that any of this had to happen is slightly sad considering that at the end of the day what this all came down to was the importance of making money really in favor of real true artistry but that's the world we live in like it or not that's the deal so after that lengthy dissertation outlining the 80s let's go back and have a more detailed look at the actual year 1980 and some of the specific stuff that happened during those first 12 months I talked about advancements in technology earlier. In July 1979, Sony launched the first Sony Walkman in Japan, and the rest of the world would see it in June 1980. The prototype was developed from what was called the Sony Pressman, which was a tape recorder created in 1977 and mostly used just by reporters. The origin of the Walkman is interesting. 
In the late 1960s, the creation of cassette tapes allowed people to listen to music in the car, even though vinyl was still by far considered the main format when it came to listening to music at home. The Walkman was created after one of Sony's co-founders used one of Sony's big clunky cassette recorders to listen to music while he was traveling on business. At some point, he asked a Sony executive to look into the possibility of designing a device for playback only with headphone jacks. And they produced that first prototype using the Pressman recorder because of its more compact size. Eventually, the Walkman TPS L2, the world's first portable stereo, was available only in Japan on July 1, 1979, and sold for about 150 bucks. Sony didn't expect much from this new product, figuring it might move around 5,000 units a month. But by September 1979, it sold more than 50,000 units. This, of course, meant international release, and Sony would make the Walkman available worldwide the following year. When it was first introduced outside Japan, the product had different names, though, depending on the country that it was released in. Sony launched the Walkman in North America as the Soundabout. In the UK, it was called the Stowaway. It was known as the Freestyle in places like Australia and Sweden. Eventually, the Walkman caught on globally, and Sony just used that name worldwide. Soon, Walkman would become a generic term, referring to personal mobile cassette players regardless of brand or make, in the same way that Kleenex and Q-Tip did. In German-speaking countries, use of the word Walkman became commonplace, to the point where the Austrian Supreme Court of Justice ruled in 2002 that Sony couldn't prevent others from using the term Walkman to describe their personal stereo, whether it was a Walkman or not. Years later, with the advent of the compact disc, the Walkman's successor would be the Sony Discman. In turn, the Walkman and the Discman are progenitors of digital audio players like the Apple iPod. The Walkman had a massive influence on 80s culture. The word Walkman itself was entered into the Oxford English Dictionary in 1986. Millions of people used the Walkman as they exercised, and it was almost considered an essential item during the aerobics craze that followed. Cassettes outsold vinyl for the first time ever in 1983, and I'm sure the Walkman had a lot to do with that. Other companies like Panasonic and Toshiba would launch similar personal stereotype products to try to cash in on the phenomenon. My first Walkman actually was a Panasonic model that I had when I was in grade 7 before I bought my yellow sports Walkman in 1983, and that was used for the remainder of my teenage and some of my university years. I've still got it to this day, actually. I just dug it out of storage a couple of years ago. Funny enough, it still works like a charm. So getting back to David Bowie, in February of 1986, days before his buddy Lou Reed would be married, Bowie divorced his wife of 10 years, Angie Barnett Bowie. And by all accounts, their marriage was pretty turbulent for the most part, Bowie having described it as being like living with a blowtorch. They reportedly had an open marriage, and Angie claimed Bowie was in fact bisexual and had a relationship with Mick Jagger going so far as to say she caught them in bed together one day. That always made me wonder about the Rolling Stones song, Angie, and whether it was about her, 
given the promiscuity of the times. The song is credited, like most Rolling Stone songs are, as being written by both Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, even though the song was mostly written by Richards. But like me, other people also thought the song may have been about Angie Barnett, but apparently there were a number of other Angies that may have inspired the tune. Keith Richards' newborn daughter, Dandelion Angela, was one of them. Policewoman actress Angie Dickinson was another, along with a few other lesser-known females named Angie. Like the lore surrounding other songs at the time, like Carly Simon's You're So Vain and Who It Was Really About, until she revealed in 2015 that it was in fact Warren Beatty and not Mick Jagger, a concrete answer seems elusive when it comes to Angie. In his 2010 memoir, Life, Keith Richards said the song wasn't about any particular person at all. He said he had chosen the name at random when writing the song, long before he knew that his baby would be named Angela, or even knew that his baby would be a girl, for that matter. But in the liner notes for the Rolling Stones compilation album Jump Back, The Best of the Rolling Stones, which was issued in 1993, Richards said that the title was inspired by his baby daughter, Angie. And for his part, Jagger told English music magazine NME that his contributions to the lyrics are a reference to his breakup with Marianne Faithful. So it more or less remains a mystery, and likely will forever. But you know, one cool thing about the original recording of that song is that if you listen closely, you can hear Jagger's guide vocal very faintly, deep in the mix through the whole song. A guide vocal, or ghost vocal sometimes it's called, is typically done just to serve as a marker during recording so that everyone has an idea of where the vocal line is, the melody of it, and so forth. Almost like a rough sketch before the final vocal is completed and put in place. But for some reason, the guide vocal for Angie was left in. Also in 1980, and also in the UK, post-punk group Joy Division were about to embark on their very first North American tour after building up a substantial following in the UK in the late 70s. Joy Division had formed in July of 1976 after childhood friends Bernard Sumner and Peter Hook saw a Sex Pistols show in Manchester. The show had a profound effect on them, with Sumner saying that he thought the Sex Pistols destroyed the myth of the pop star, of how musicians were being worshipped as gods. And the following day, Hook borrowed 35 quid from his mom, bought a bass guitar, and he and Sumner, along with a guy named Terry Mason, who had also attended the Pistol Show, formed the band. Sumner bought a guitar, Mason bought a drum kit. They placed an advertisement for a singer in the Manchester Virgin Records shop. Ian Curtis, who knew them, responded and was brought in without even having to audition. They called themselves Warsaw which was a nod to David Bowie's song of the same name, from his 1977 record, Low. So as not to be confused with the London punk band Warsaw Pact, the band changed their name to Joy Division in early 1978, and they got the name from a 1955 book called House of Dolls, in which there was mention of a sexual slavery area in a Nazi concentration camp. It's referred to in the book as the Joy Division, in December 1978, Joy Division singer Ian Curtis experienced his first epileptic seizure 
as the band was making significant progress. The band recognized that Curtis's illness was something that they would have to learn to accept and accommodate. Their breakthrough came in late 1979, as their debut record, Unknown Pleasures, began to take hold in the UK. Joy Division toured Europe in January 1980, and Curtis suffered further grand mal seizures during the last portion of the tour. The rigors of being on the road made Curtis's seizures worse, bordering on being almost uncontrollable. He sometimes had seizures during actual performances, leading some of the audience to believe that it was, in fact, part of the show. The seizures embarrassed and depressed Curtis, and the band worried more and more about his condition as time wore on. On April 7th, Curtis attempted to overdose on phenobarbitone, medication prescribed to him for his seizures. The resulting illness forced several gig cancellations. Joy Division were scheduled to commence their first North American tour the following month. Curtis was excited about it, but his relationship with his wife Deborah was now on the rocks due to an affair he was having with a Belgian journalist and music promoter. Curtis was also very nervous about how he thought American audiences would react to his seizures. The night before the band were supposed to leave for America, Curtis asked his wife to leave him alone in their house until he left for Manchester the next morning. In the early hours of May 18, 1980, Curtis hanged himself in his kitchen. His body was discovered by Deborah later that day. The Joy Division camp were shocked and devastated by the suicide. In June 1980, Joy Division's single Love Will Tear Us Apart was released, which hit number 13 on the UK singles chart. The members had made a pact with each other long before Curtis's death to change the band name if any of the members left for whatever reason. The band reformed as New Order, with Sumner as their new singer and Gillian Gilbert as keyboardist and second guitarist. New Order's debut single was crafted from the last two songs written with Curtis and called Ceremony. New Order struggled to emerge from their Joy Division shadow in the years immediately following the death of Ian Curtis, but in time, New Order would actually go on to achieve far greater commercial success with a completely different dance-oriented sound. All right, next week we're going to look at another band that also had their singer die in 1980, but would also go on to achieve far greater commercial success. In fact, releasing one of the most popular rock and roll albums ever recorded. Any guesses? Find out next week here on No Sleep Till Sudbury. This is Brent Jensen. Till next time, folks, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.